Well, the last time I was able to be with you, um, one of the last times anyway, we did uh, we had a little bit of a chat uh, through some of the the Bible through history, and so um, I wanted to try and continue that theme, but I wanted to focus on somebody specifically. Um, I've recently started uh, becoming more interested with the early church and how the church got started. Uh, and there are some people who made that happen throughout history that were pretty important figures. Obviously, the apostles were played a very large role in forming and um, sending out the early church. But there were some other uh, people involved in that that weren't apostles, but were directly influenced by them to continue on the mission of God's church throughout uh, the, the sort of early stages. And so today I wanted to focus on one of those men, uh, and his name is Polycarp. Uh, if you've never heard of him, he's got a funny name, and I know that. But Polycarp was one of the, uh, one of the early church founding members. So much so, uh, that he actually studied, it's, it's widely believed, that he studied with the Apostle John which is a pretty impressive thing to think about. Uh, this guy who um, lived at the same time as one of the apostles did was a student of that apostle and had a direct line of communication with a person who hung out with Jesus. Now that's pretty incredible for me to think about, I think. To be able to just sit down and talk with a guy who spoke to Jesus. <laughs> That's an incredible thing. Now, Polycarp was born around the year 69 AD. This it comes directly after the reign of Nero in Rome. Nero's reign ended around 68. Polycarp was born the next year. And so Polycarp was born into a uh, a time that was very tumultuous for the for Jerusalem and for the early Christians and the early church. You see, Rome, Rome didn't particularly care for Christians. <laughs> he didn't particularly care for people who were believing in this Messiah, this, this one other king. You see, to Rome, there was only one ruler. And that was the emperor. And history tells us that Nero was particularly... Um, Pretty terrible to the early church and the early Christians. Uh, lots of stories about Nero lighting the streets with Christians by putting them on posts, covering them in oil, and then lighting them on fire. Lots of terrible stories. And so Polycarp was born into this at the height of Roman rule, the, at, at the height of their empire, he comes into this. The very year after he was born, Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed, never to be rebuilt. You see, Rome was pretty powerful at the time. But as Polycarp grew up, we assume and, and make some assumptions based on writings that we have about him that he grew up in a Christian family, in a Christian home. And so from a very early age knew that this was going to be a part of what he did with his life. Now, another part about his life that we do know is that he didn't come from a lot of money. <laughs> Polycarp and his family didn't have a lot. 
And so Polycarp grew up uneducated. He didn't go to school. And yet somehow he turned that into being one of the most influential people in the early church. And we'll talk about that in here in just a little bit. As I said earlier, he was regarded as a student of John the Apostle. He became a prolific speaker and writer despite being uneducated. He wrote a lot of different letters despite being uneducated. But the only one that we still have that exists is a letter that he writes to the Philippian church. Which I find just terribly interesting. He writes this letter to the Philippian church a lot like the book of Philippians that we have in the New Testament. In fact, it's sort of believed there's a lot of school of thought from different scholars that Polycarp may have been a big influencer in what books went into the New Testament. That he may have helped compile all of the letters that were going to eventually become the New Testament. You see, the Bible hadn't actually been formed yet when Polycarp and the early church other members of the early church were doing their ministry. They didn't, they didn't have this. They had letters that the apostles had written to other churches. But they didn't have an actual scripture to hand out to people like we do today. But he wrote to the Philippian church much like the same message that we see in the current book of Philippians. Uh, messages about making sure that they stick to the faith as much as they can. That they avoid people who would take away from that. A lot of talk about false teachers. In fact, there was a, a pretty famous false teacher who was walking around Jerusalem at this time, or the, or the place that Polycarp lived. And Polycarp ran into him. It's kind of a funny story. This guy's name was Marcion, and, and so he was going around teaching things that were wrong about what Jesus did and what Jesus, who Jesus was and about the Christian faith. And Polycarp had heard about it. And so they ran into each other on the street. And Marcion called him out. And Polycarp did this really funny thing. He didn't engage with him. He literally just said, I don't want anything to do with you, son of Satan. Okay, wait. <laughs> so I want you to put yourself in, in the sandals of these guys here for a second. If, <laughs> if you saw somebody who was talking about your Christian faith in a way that wasn't exactly how it's supposed to be, if you saw somebody who was talking bad not necessarily even talking bad, but just talking wrong about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, and what it means to be in that uh, faith. How would you approach it? Polycarp didn't pull any punches. He walked straight up to the guy and, and, call, and called him a spawn of the devil. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty tough. That's pretty rough language. But Polycarp knew that it was important to make the distinction that this person was not teaching the right way. And so he, a lot of his writings had to deal with uh, making sure that people were on their guard. And that's a message that I think is still important for us today. 
Polycarp did a lot of really amazing things throughout his life, all of these writings, these teachings that he did, and it all led to him being killed for his faith. I think that's one of the larger themes of the early Christian church, that a lot of these early Christians had to make a choice. Were they going to be just sideline Christians? Were they just going to be the people who, if you had questions about who Jesus was, they would answer them, but not really do anything boldly for their faith? Or were they actually going to make a difference? Were they actually going to stand for what they believed in? Were they actually going to put their life on the line for the things that they professed? And Polycarp was one of the ones that made that decision. He was one of the ones that made the decision that if it comes to it, I'll die for what I believe in. And I think that's such an interesting thing for us. You see, Polycarp lived in a time where he was pretty far removed from Jesus. It had been about 40 years since Jesus had been around. There were still some people hanging on, some people who had been alive when Jesus was alive. I mean, he was a student under John the Apostle. So we, we know at least he was influenced by one person who had been alive when Jesus was alive. But there's chances that there were more. But the message of God had been so impactful in his life that he had decided at some point that not only was he going to do everything he could to tell everyone that he could about what it is that he believed... But he was also willing to lay his life on the line for that message. Have you ever believed in something so strongly that you would lay your life on the line for it? Have you ever believed in something so strongly that you'd be willing to give up your life for that belief? I know there's a lot of times in my own life where I I would have a hard time answering that question. But by all accounts, Polycarp, there was an easy choice for him. The tradition goes that when it came down to the end of his life, we're not entirely sure why he was going to be arrested and why he was going to be martyred. But the Romans came to his house to arrest him, regardless. And he knew that they were coming. And so one of the things that he did was he, as they were arriving to his house, told them to wait, and he went to another room and started praying for every single person that he could think of. <laughs> I don't know how long that took. <laughs> but by the end of his life, he had lived about 86 years, and by the end of his life, he had probably met a handful of people. <laughs> And so he, by name, started praying for everybody that he could think of. And we knew he was finished. He was taken away. And again, as tradition states, uh, he was burned at the stake. What was funny is that the Romans were getting the pile of wood together. They had the stake in the middle. And they were going to bind him to the stake so that he didn't run away. But he simply looked at them and he said, God has never let me down in my life so far. I don't think he's going to let me down now. You don't have to bind me. What? (laughs) 
That was his response to being burned at the stake was, you don't have to tie me up to this. You don't have to nail me to this stake. God has taken care of me so far. He'll take care of me in this. He said, your fire will last for a season, but the fire of judgment will last forever. Whoa. (laughs) Even at the moment he was going to be killed for his faith, he was still preaching. (laughs) God will take care of me even in this. He hasn't failed me yet through my life. (laughs) I mean, man. There's, of course, some um, colorful things that have happened through tradition and history through his martyrdom. Uh, it's said that the, the fire... Oh, man, what was one thing that I read? It said that the fire didn't consume him, but made him glow like baking bread. <laughs> Which I just thought was hilarious. And the fire wasn't actually the thing that killed him. The Roman soldiers had to stab him with a spear because the fire wasn't actually burning him. Another tradition says, that, and this is, of course, one of the more colorful things. Uh, the tradition states that after he had, he had been killed uh, and they did an autopsy on his body when they cut his heart out, the name of the Lord had been inscribed on his heart. Whether that was true or not, I don't know, but it makes for a fun story. <laughs> But what we, one thing that we do know about this man, Polycarp, was that he had done some pretty serious influencing in the early church. And I think there are three lessons that we can take from his life and hopefully apply to our own. The first thing that I think we can take from his life, and that was, again, just a very brief overview of his life. I would strongly encourage, if you're in, if you like history and you like Uh, the idea of knowing where we came from as a church, where we came from. I would encourage looking into the early church fathers. Uh, But one thing, the first thing that I think we can, lesson that we can uh, gain from uh, the example that Polycarp gave us was that God can use you despite your history. God can use you despite your history. It doesn't matter where you come from. God can use you. You see, Polycarp didn't go to school. He didn't learn how to read. He eventually learned how to write, evidently. But for a large part of his life, that wasn't something that he was able to partake in. Possibly because of his poverty and his the, where his family came from. But despite that, God still used him to do incredible things in the early church. Early church tradition also states that John appointed him a bishop of Smyrna. Which is a pretty important role in the early church. And so, despite having this very humble upbringing, God was able to use him for incredible things. The second thing that, the second lesson that I think we can take from the example that he gave us was that we must always be kingdom focused. You see, all throughout his life, he had all of these external things that were happening around him in the climate of Roman rule. And yet through all of it, 
he was focused on one thing, and that was bringing people to Jesus. It didn't matter that Christians were being carted into the Colosseum and slaughtered for sport. It didn't matter that Christians were being lit on fire to light the streets of Rome. It didn't matter that the early church was being persecuted from every which way. No matter what was going on in the world around them, he was focused on making sure that people knew who Jesus was. The real Jesus. Not this pseudo-Christianity that some people were teaching. The real Jesus. And so no matter what happens in our lives around us, we must always be kingdom focused. It doesn't matter if we've lost a job or if we hate our coworkers <laughs> or if there are sanctions put on what you can and cannot say or people start taking away your rights. It must always be kingdom focused. I've long thought that even though there are some pretty weird things happening in our country, especially now, but over the last decade or so, we still have it pretty good. There are a lot of Christians in a lot of other countries who don't have the same rights. We watched the video, I don't remember if it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, the Voice of the Martyrs video that I think really speaks to that. There are a lot of Christians in a lot of places who don't share the same freedoms that we share. And yet, time after time, we read about them being kingdom-focused despite the craziness of the places that they live. And so no matter what happens in our life, God has called us to be kingdom-focused. The third thing that I think we can learn about the example that Polycarp gave was that God will always be with us. God will always be with us. Even to the moment that he was being killed for his faith, he was still preaching and he was still believing that God was going to be with him. I don't know if I could say that. If I was standing on top of a pile of wood that was being set on fire, I'm, I'm probably not going to be okay. <laughs> but God will always be with us no matter what happens in our life. And that is one of the hardest lessons I think that we can, that we have to remember is that even when life gets extremely difficult, God is still going to be with us. <clears throat> As I thought about the life of Polycarp and some of the things that he taught and some of the things that he said and some of the things that he did, my cousin-in-law, yes, <laughs> my cousin-in-law today posted a, a a thing on Facebook that really struck me. 
And it just tied in so well with what I was already thinking about the early church and the early church fathers and the the people who kind of got the church moving. And he talked about James chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles, I I would love for you to follow along with me in James chapter 4. You see, all of the things that Polycarp did and all of the things that he was able to accomplish through Jesus and because of Jesus, I think a lot of it comes down to what happens and what we hear about in James chapter 4. And so if you'll follow along with me, starting in verse 1, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And then he really calls us out and says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? But He gives us more grace, and that is why Scripture said God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so here in this first part of of chapter 4, I think this is the culmination of what I was seeing from the life of Polycarp and what I think is a great application for our lives today. That especially there in verse uh, 4. God has called us to something different than what the world has to offer. The world has a lot of things to offer. A lot of things. But so many of those things are not kingdom-focused. And so here we're called out saying that if you are a friend of the world, that's essentially the same thing as hating God. (coughs) I mean, that's a tough message. (laughs) How does it go? We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And so I want us to stop and think about what that means exactly for where you are right now. Are you more focused on what's happening in the world around you? Are you more focused on believing in a president that's going to save our country? Or are you believing in Jesus who's going to save the world? Are you more focused on politicians in Washington and Wall Street? Or are you focused on the poor and the destitute and the widows? You see, there are so many more things that are more important than what the world has to offer. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, They'll sound like dark verses. (laughs) But here's what he means. Rejoicing for what the world has to offer 
is completely missing the mark with what God wants for your life. And so what we should do instead is resist that, but fully give ourselves over to what God wants for you and for me. He goes on to finish up in in this first part of chapter 4, saying, Brothers, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. And this is, uh, these are a couple of verses that speak to me on a deep level. For several weeks now, I've been holding on to pain and hurt that really aren't mine to even hang on to from a situation that happened uh, that was beyond my control anyway. And so these verses specifically speak to me in that it's a reminder that I need to let that go. Is there something in your life that you've been hanging on to that's keeping you from living the full life that God has asked you to live? That God has called you to live. You see, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about submitting ourselves to God. Letting go of the things that are keeping us away from him. Letting go of the pain. Letting go of the hurt. Submitting ourselves fully to God. A lot of the members of the early church lived that way. A lot of members of the early church, those church fathers did their absolute very best from everything that we can see from their history and their writings, did their very best to live the type of life that God had called them to live. None none of them are perfect because we've all sinned. And so I don't want to, I certainly don't want to make the distinction that any of these early church members and early church fathers were perfect people because they weren't. But they live lives that are examples for us to think about as we live our own life. What are we doing about the gospel? What are we doing about telling people about Jesus? Are you living the the life that God has called you to live? You don't have to be a preacher, and you don't have to be a a song singer, and you don't have to be a, a poet, a writer. Sometimes God has just called you to be a prayer, a friend, a shoulder to cry on. But each and every one of us has a specific place in the kingdom and a specific role to play. Are you kingdom focused in everything that you do? Do you know that God will be with you through every step of that way? because if we're focused on the kingdom if we're focused on what it is that God wants for our life we're focused on the gospel message that Jesus brings hope and Jesus brings life quarrels will cease we won't have to worry about what happens in Washington we won't have to worry about what happens with all of the evil and sin of the world, we can focus solely 
on the hope of Jesus Christ where he died on the cross and saved humanity from its sin. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the example that you give us through so many of the early church members. Father, we ask that as we look to our own lives, as we take an introspective look at where we are in our own path, would you help us to see places that we can more faithfully live for you? Maybe there are areas of our lives that we have not fully given over to you. Maybe there are things that we are holding on to that's keeping us from living the type of life that you have called us to live. And so today, would you help us to let that go? Today, would you help us to move forward? Today, would your spirit prompt us to do something amazing for you and for your kingdom? God, I thank you so much for your spirit your, that washes over us, that cleanses us, that, that brings us to a better knowledge of who you are. And God, if there's anyone here today who just needs to make some sort of a decision to either follow you for the very first time or maybe come back to you because they've gone too far away, God, would you prompt them to make that decision? There is no better time than right now. God, thank you for who you are, what you do. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, which overflows for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand. We're going to